Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the Meriton Assembly. We are starting pretty early on in Pride and Prejudice when the Bennett family is discussing meeting their new neighbor, Mr. Bingley. Mrs. Bennett is desperate to introduce him to her daughters, but is unsure how that opportunity might present itself. And Lizzie points out that, but you forget, Mama, that we shall meet him at the assemblies and that Mrs. Long has promised to introduce him. And then finally, finally, after much anticipation, Mr. Bingley makes his entrance at the Meriton Assembly. And this is from the text. And when the party entered the assembly room, it consisted of only five altogether. Mr. Bingley, his two sisters, the husband of the eldest, and another young man. Mr. Bingley had soon made himself acquainted with all the principal people in the room. He was lively and unreserved, danced every dance, was angry that the ball closed so early, and talked of giving one himself at Netherfield. Such amiable qualities must speak for themselves. He's just, he's there for a good time. Mr. Bingley just embodying his best golden retriever energy. (laughs) Good old Bingley. Let's start with a definition of assemblies from Ephraim Chambers in his 1729 book, Cyclopedia, or a Universal Dictionary of Arts and Sciences. A book that every house should have, really. (laughs) An assembly is a stated and general meeting of the polite persons of both sexes for the sake of conversation, gallantry, news, and play. That's my new favorite definition of anything, really. (laughs) Conversation, gallantry, I love it. Yes. News and play, all the good things, (laughs) all the things you want. So assemblies were really an 18th century concept. They became popular between 1710 and 1720 and were initially just like what Chambers describes, meetings for men and women to have conversation, cards, and tea. It wasn't until the 1720s that public assemblies expanded to include dancing as part of the entertainment. And according to Marc Girard in his book, The English Town, quote, In the 1720s, they were still a new craze, as popular and controversial as bicycling in the 1880s or jazz in the 1920s. Part of the reason these assemblies were considered so controversial was that they were public events for men and women. Before assemblies became popular, people were doing most of their entertaining at home, especially women. Men could go and gather in public spaces like coffee houses or clubs, but women were really restricted in public spaces. Private balls were definitely a thing at this point in time, you know, meaning whoever had the means to do so could host a ball in their home and have control over who they invited like the Netherfield ball that Bingley proposes in the passage we just read. But these balls would have been prohibitively expensive, and they were not a very frequent or reliable occurrence in the early parts of the 1700s. So along came these assemblies that allow and encourage men and women to mingle in public, and it's perceived as a bit risque. (laughs) By the mid-1700s, however, they were considered mainstream, and even essential for men and women to socialize. Part of their popularity, according to Girard, 
was that assemblies became a social option during a period when, quote, arranged marriages were on the wane and private parties for members of both sexes relatively rare outside London. They provided a means of bringing suitable couples together, which, you know, obviously is on Mrs. Bennett's mind in these scenes. But we'll come back to that in a minute. It's always on Mrs. Bennett's mind. It is always. Always. Public assemblies were initially held in any large available room. This could include houses or buildings that were no longer in regular use, or even homes where the owners were rarely in residence. You know, like, hey, I'm not going to be home. Have a party. (laughs) In the country, like the fictional town of Meryton, these assemblies might also be held at the best inn in the village. After assemblies really caught on in the 1720s, people started to actually build assembly rooms specifically for that purpose. According to Kristen Richardson in her book, The Season, A Social History of the Debutante, she writes that between 1720 and 1820, 70 purpose-built assembly rooms were operating in England and Wales. So they really do kind of just become incredibly popular. Oftentimes, the funds for these new assembly rooms would be raised by subscription. If you were a local family of influence or money, you would likely contribute to the building fund for the new rooms in your village. But it didn't just have to be the really wealthy that contributed. For example, the assembly rooms in York, which were built between 1730 to 1732, had over 190 contributing subscribers. So people were ready to build a party room, basically. (laughs) We want to dance, my friends. Mm The average purpose-specific assembly room would consist of a few essential elements. It needed to have a ballroom, a card room, and a room for refreshments, usually called tea rooms. There had to be a space for musicians, usually up in a gallery in early assembly rooms. But later on in that period, these rooms could be kind of moved down to the main floor. They had to have decent lighting, which is, you know, have places for candles and chandeliers that are obviously the, the lighting sources in the evenings. And they also had to make sure that heating was something that was available and, and, you know, it was a priority in those winter months. Once the assembly rooms were built or a location established, the assemblies themselves were supported by subscription. So a subscription to build the assembly room and then a subscription to maintain the assembly room. Yeah. According to Ellen Caselow from Historic UK, quote, entry to the assemblies was by subscription which might cost just one pound for the season in the country, but as much as 10 guineas in London. Castillo goes on to describe a little bit more about country assemblies specifically, like those at Meryton. So here's here's what she says. Country assemblies were less formal gatherings than those in town and were attended by the local gentry. These often coincided with local events such as country fairs, the assizes, or horse racing. In the winter... Assemblies were usually held monthly and timed to coincide with a full moon, making it easier to travel to and from the venue in the dark. The dancing would take place typically between 8 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. and would consist of country dancing, the cotillion, scotch reel, and quadrille. Only light refreshments would be served unless the event was a special occasion. And we actually see like elements of each of these things in the Meriton Ball Assemblies. You know, the fact that they are a monthly occurrence, the fact that Bingley's sad that it ends so early. <laughs> These sorts of things are all very, very in keeping with a traditional country assembly. It's like, we, we should be dancing until two o'clock in the morning. Come on. <laughs> country hours, my friend. Country hours. 
Obviously, assemblies, especially country assemblies, became a vital part of the social structure of communities. For example, these assemblies were almost considered instructive for younger adults, like Lydia and Kitty Bennett. According to Richardson, young women learned how to behave at these informal balls that took place within a large and safe group of family and vouched-for acquaintances in attendance. This was a place where you could fail a little bit and still recover. And of course, note that only the young women need to worry about learning how to behave correctly yeah. and that you can fail, but don't fail too much because then your entire reputation might be ruined. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. The double standards, very intact. And Austin actually even seems to hint at this idea of education via assemblies when she writes from, and this is, this is from Pride and Prejudice, Catherine and Lydia had been fortunate enough to be never without partners, which was all that they had yet learned to care for at a ball. And so we get the idea that, you know, their, their whole learning curve is just like, don't sit out a dance. That's, that's all that they've really learned. And Mrs. Bennett would theoretically be the one who should be guiding and correcting any inappropriate behavior in her daughters at these assemblies. But there, there's none of that happening in this novel. With Mrs. Bennett as their mother, it kind of makes sense that the, that the number of partners would be, would be a high priority for these two, you know, get as many, as many opportunities to snag the attention of a gentleman as possible. Which again, Mrs. Bennett, she's got five daughters to marry off. <laughs> Her head is always in the game, right? I'm not saying she goes about things in the best way, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> she is often her own worst enemy in this quest, sure. but yes. I do appreciate where she's coming from. <laughs> the lack of supervision or correction during this Meriton Ball, though we don't have any indications that they are misbehaving, the way that Austin writes this scene, you know, she's not giving us a ton of detail or mm -hmm. dialogue yeah. for all the characters. But it really foreshadows the awkwardness that the Bennets experience at the Netherfield Ball. A private ball would be a far less forgiving social setting. And it really demonstrates that the younger Bennets are not ready for anything like London society. They would be just chewed up and spit out. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And so the country setting for the Meriton Assembly has another potential symbolic social implication. According to Richardson, quote, assemblies originated in the countryside and were tied symbolically, yet not insignificantly, to the hunt. Because the hunts drew together acquaintances from all over the country. Hunt balls were often places where future husbands and wives met. There's just something really delightful about the idea of public balls and assemblies being associated with the hunt. I think Mrs. Bennett would appreciate this kind of connection. The point of a ball, especially for someone like Mrs. Bennett <laughs> and many other women of this period, would be husband hunting, either for themselves or for their daughters. Right. Yeah, uh, def definitely. She is on the prowl, for sure. She is the goddess Diana. <laughs> I like that. I like that very much. <laughs> Artemis at her bow. Oh, definitely. Another reason the Meriton Assembly is so important in Pride and Prejudice is that it is one of the easiest ways for everyone in the area to vibe check the new neighbors at Netherfield, right? Austin sets it up perfectly with a lot of anticipation and then a dramatic entrance, which I think is actually really heightened in the 2005 adaptation when they actually have like the music stops when they arrive and it's just kind of like, oh, they have arrived. We get some vibes from the Netherfield group that this ball is a little bit below par for them. Not Bingley, of course. He's just happy to be there. <laughs> He's dancing with Jane. Anyone else who needs a partner, he is having a great time. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. he passes the test. Everyone in Meriton is like, 
We are into this guy. Yeah. Such amiable qualities must speak for themselves. You know, he's easygoing. He's willing to dance with anyone. Yeah, he, he passes muster. Absolutely. Darcy, however, he doesn't, he doesn't come off quite as unscathed from this. So Darcy specifically tells Bingley he won't dance with any of the young ladies without partners because, quote, at an assembly such as this, it would be unsupportable. And then his general behavior that evening solidifies him in the eyes of the community as a complete snob. And again, this is from the book. Mr. Darcy danced only once with Mrs. Hurst and once with Miss Bingley, declined to be introduced to any other lady, and spent the rest of the evening in walking about the room, speaking occasionally to one of his own party. His character was decided. He was the proudest, most disagreeable man in the world, and everybody hoped that he would never come there again. People are not really impressed with his, with his kind of party behavior. <laughs> he has not made a good impression. No. And as somebody who also sometimes does not make a good impression, <laughs> I totally get where Darcy's coming from. I have pretty serious anxiety, and I am also deeply uncomfortable in unknown or new social situations. So I think... It makes perfect sense that there's some real discomfort going on here for him that stems from him being in this public space where he doesn't know anyone. But like you said, because of his status as such a wealthy man and a newcomer to town, you know, like he has status. So he's being watched by everyone. And there's this expectation of like a certain level of generosity in terms of socializing with others mm -hmm. and sort of being open to mingling with the locals, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. So again, I totally get Darcy because I am he, but <laughs> it makes sense why he's not making a great impression. And he does say some things that just aren't particularly kind. Right. For example, this famous comment to Bingley on Elizabeth's appearance, quote, she is tolerable, but not handsome enough to tempt me. And I am in no humor at present to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. Oof. Which is not very nice, mm -mm. Darcy. Mm -mm. And Lizzie overhears that, as do others in all likelihood. Yeah. So I think we can all agree that that was maybe not the best. Mm -hmm. And you can see why Lizzie would be less than impressed. You know, yeah. she's kind of like, okay, well, thank you for that. Right. And I think that there is, I think you can kind of talk about like maybe he's sort of feeling like his back is up against the wall. You know, Bingley won't Leave him alone. Yeah. Bingley won't stop pressuring him. Like, get out there. Get, you know, you right. can just imagine Bingley's that friend who's like, come on, come on. And Darcy's like, listen, I've told you like 47 times, no, I do not want mm -hmm. to dance. I'm not comfortable. You know this about me. Yeah. And so when Bingley's like, oh, great. What about this girl? It puts him on the spot. It really does. Yeah. So this is like kind of Darcy's way of shutting it down. Mm -hmm. But again, considering that Elizabeth overhears the entire conversation. Yeah. It's not great. It's not great. But also sets up one of the greatest enemies to lovers love stories of all time. So there's 100%. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Joan Klingle Ray suggests in her article, Do Elizabeth and Darcy Really Improve on Acquaintance? That there might be more reasons. There might be other reasons for Darcy's standoffish behavior at this assembly. He's likely fully familiar with country assemblies. You know, his estate is in the country after all. And his bestie is Bingley, whose family earned their fortune in trade. So she's saying, I don't, I don't think that Darcy's just being like elitist here. She points out that the rumor of Darcy's fortune is being talked about all around this assembly room. 
and that he can likely hear some of that gossip swirling around him. So as a result, Klingle Ray writes, no wonder Darcy dances only with the Bingley sisters. He has enough dealing with Miss Bingley's dancing pirouettes of admiration around him without falsely encouraging the husband and fortune-hungry Meriton females to join her. Dancing pirouettes of admiration. (laughs) I I want that on a t-shirt now. Like, I really want this. That is chef's kiss. What a great description. So good. But yeah, again, I think that makes perfect sense. Like, if you think about Darcy as someone who is already uncomfortable in these kinds of situations, and then on top of that, consider the fact that he would be seen as this huge prize on the marriage mart. If he were to dance with anybody, for sure, everybody would be like... The the rumors would start. They'd be like, oh, he's got the hots for so-and-so. Exactly. Exactly. You can definitely see why he is so uncomfortable. There's, There's a lot of reasons why this would not really be his scene. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Joan Klingle Ray continues. So while Darcy is certainly impolite not to dance with young women lacking partners, may he not also be hesitant to dance with young women of a country market town interested in him for his good, indeed very good, fortune, the subject of the assembly's hot gossip? Darcy knows that he must be guarded, for he has much at stake in choosing a wife. Yeah, I think that framing really does, like, there's a lot of pressure on Darcy in this scene, and he just, it's not comfortable for him. It just yeah. isn't. So he's, he's standoffish for, for some real reasons here. So when it comes to adaptations, I think the representation of the Meriton Ball, I think one of the best adaptations of, for this is the 2005 adaptation, because it really does actually give you public assembly hall vibes like it it just does the scene starts with the doors opening so it feels like you're entering the room with the camera it pans around to show lines of dancers seating along the side of the room gives a shot of the gallery where the musicians are playing and a great use of mixed types of clothing and textiles which are kind of meant to signal the social status of the dancers right that this is this is a country affair we have very limited super posh finery and so it's just You know, all the party vibes are there. So there's a lot to unpack from this first introduction of Darcy and the Bingley family at the Meriton Ball for sure. And we definitely get more context on each character as the novel goes along. But I think Austin just nails this as an introduction to the characters at a country assembly where, you know, the marriage minded mamas are thirsty, the gossip is juicy, and the fancy pants neighbors make their first impressions. It's a, kind of like a perfect snow globe of society in a village like this. Oh, yeah. And it just establishes so much in like a single scene. Well, if you would like to tell us about some of your favorite experiences at your local assembly, <laughs> your senior prom, whatever have you, <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. We also wanted to thank everyone who contacted us regarding our episode on General Tilney's China. Mm-hmm. Megan Marie, Alexa Lee, and Lizbeth all provided us with additional detail on the blue transfer printing process. Megan Marie was especially patient in trying to answer my questions <laughs> about how it worked with water and all of that. Mm -hmm. Alexa Lee also shared a great video on how they do the process at Spode, which we will add to our show notes for that episode on our website. So I definitely recommend checking that out. Mm -hmm. And Lizbeth, who is working on her master's in archaeology on the use of ceramics in 17th and 18th century Belgium, 
mentioned that from the second half of the 18th century onwards, Staffordshire pottery was everywhere here, too. Yeah, it made it through Europe. Yeah. Yeah. So an example of how popular this pottery was. And then a little bit more from her email. Transfer printing is a process to decorate pottery. First, an illustration is engraved on a copper plate, which is then covered in a kind of very diluted clay paste with added cobalt, where the blue color comes from. This illustration is printed onto a piece of paper or wax and is subsequently pressed onto a piece of pottery, which has already been fired once. After the illustration is printed onto the vessel, it is covered in a glaze, hence underglaze, and fired again. This process really was revolutionary because now pottery could be decorated with the same illustrations time and again. Before this, every decorated vessel was painted by hand by very skilled artists. The transfer printing process greatly contributed to the industrialization of the pottery industry in England, which is why this pottery was found everywhere in Europe. So making it easier to reproduce. Yeah. And that makes sense why why it would proliferate so much as well. So thank you again to everyone who shared their additional knowledge with us. Yes. And stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about the bath paper with our guest, Barbara Heller. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.